Welcome to another podcast by Every Nation Brisbane. We're so glad you can join us here today. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at enbrisbane.org. Please enjoy the following message. All right, we'll be reading from Hebrews 7, uh, verses 23 to 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need for those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than their law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Let's all bow our heads in prayer, everybody. Father, thank you for your word, which brings us to life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, even as we understand that you are the appointed son who is the great high priest, uh, God, that you would come and uh, take full control of our service, our time together, and even our hearts. I want to pray, Holy Spirit, for your anointing, Lord, to be able to hear your word beyond my capacity to teach it and preach it this morning. We want to pray, Lord, that you would help and prepare the soil of our hearts to receive all you have for us today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. We are in this series called Set Apart. And we're, with, we're actually in this series with the rest of our spiritual family across the world. Just um, for the beginning of the year, uh, our leaders really felt prompted by the Holy Spirit that this would be uh, the, the series that we would go through. And we're looking at the biblical uh, view of holiness. And so last week we were in Leviticus. Uh, the weeks before that we were in Genesis. And today we are in Hebrews. And the title of my message, it'll make sense prayerfully by the end of our time together, is we free kings. We free kings. I know it's not Christmas. It's obviously a play on words, so just track with me and we'll get there. But I wanted to start off our time together today by telling you a little story. Yes, that's right. It's story time with Uncle Nelly. So so lean in, kids. Here we go. And it's a story about cookies, Anybody here like cookies? Maybe that was the dish you picked. I'm a, a bit of a cookie myself. Uh, the Cookie Thief is the title of this story by an author by the name of uh, Valerie Cox. So follow me as I tell you the story. You can, you can close your eyes and imagine this as I tell it. Don't close your eyes too hard and fall asleep. All right, here we go. A woman was waiting at the airport one night, and there was several long hours before her flight. So she decided to hunt for a book in the airport shops, and she bought a bunch of cookies in a bag and found a place to drop. Anybody been there before, like just tired at the airport? So she drops down and she was so engrossed in her book, but happened to see that there was a man sitting beside her and as bold as could be, started grabbing a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched on the cookies and she started watching the clock as the gutsy cookie thief started diminishing her stock. And she was getting more and more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie that she took, he took one too. Until there was one left, only one. 
And she wondered what he would do at that point. And with a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. And then he offered her half as he ate the other. And she snatched it from him and she thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's so rude. Why he didn't even show any gratitude? She'd never known something like this, and she'd been so galled. She sighed with relief. When her flight was finally called, she gathered her belongings and headed to the gate and refused to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. And then she sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she was reaching in her bags for her book, she gasped with surprise. Because there was her bag of cookies right there in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair, then the others were his. And he tried to share. It's too late to apologize. She realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Any of you been there before? Like you thought you'd been wronged only to find out later that you were the one that was completely wrong the whole time. When you do something wrong, what do you usually do to try and make it right? Obviously for her, being on the plane already, it's too late to apologize, right? There's nothing she can do at, at that point to repay the loan. Many of us would feel that way and should feel that way biblically when we approach the topic of grace. Last week, we, we closed by looking at the whole theme of atonement from Leviticus chapter 16. And I highlighted these four factors from Leviticus 16 that, that show Aaron's sacrifice in order to bring Israel and his own household in right standing with God. We talked a little bit about the mercy seat. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I'll try as much as I can to review in brevity, but I'd encourage you to read in Leviticus 16 yourself what I talked about, and we also have the podcasts available on our website. But basically, the mercy seat is, if you see this, uh, this picture behind me or on your screen, if you're listening in or watching online, uh, is the seat of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid. And this is where uh, the offering of animals would be offered in order to appease and, and rectify the, the, the sins of, of the ones who, who are offering the sacrifice. And so this is obviously foreign to us because we don't do that anymore. uh, It's most likely illegal to do that here in Brisbane right now. But the offering of the sacrifice was was worship and is worship to God. Remember Romans chapter 12 verse 1 is the only place where we find a biblical definition of what worship is, right? Uh, Paul exhorts the church to offer ourselves as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy, holy and acceptable before God, for this is our worship. The word worship comes from the old English word worship, which means that you obviously take whatever you have to sacrifice towards that which holds ultimate worth or ultimate value in your life. Now, you may think, well, I don't necessarily, you may be in this room and maybe you consider yourself not a worshiper. I'm here to tell you today that all of us are worshipers. It's just a matter of what we worship. We all sacrifice time and finances and passion and effort towards something. And that something 
was actually designed to be someone who is God. So there's the mercy seat. And then obviously you've got this weird picture of this goat back here. Um, this goat is not like many of you who are into sports, talking about who the greatest of all times is. We all know it's Michael Jordan, not LeBron James. I'm just kidding. For the, I'm going to offend the sports people in here. Uh, but Christ is both the one slain and what we call the scapegoat. So there's this term that we often use in our, in our vernacular today where we talk about the scapegoat. And that comes from Leviticus 16, which is actually where uh, Aaron was told to to put all of the sins of the nation of Israel upon the goat and then send the goat out into the wilderness. And so that's where we get the term scapegoat from. And we know today that the ultimate scapegoat is obviously Christ who took upon himself all of the sins, not just of Israel and not just of the tribe of, uh, of Levi or the priesthood of Aaron, but he took all of the sins of the world upon his shoulders, right? When he took up the, the, the cross, and then, you know, obviously we talked about bathing and how um, Aaron bathed and then he dressed in specific linen garments that were designed and instructed by God for him to wear. And so when we consider now that all of these things that I've mentioned, these four things, the, the mercy seat, the goat the, that was offered as sacrifice and then bathing and in linen, uh, the, the garments, we can see these things perfected in Christ. He is the ultimate one who invites us to the place where we can worship him now. And we'll talk a little bit about the high priest and how he is our high priest. The goat, we talked about him being the scapegoat. We are bathed in the blood of the lamb. He has, because of his sacrifice, we are now able to come in his perfection. We've been made righteous, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be called the righteousness of God. And now we get to enter into his presence. This is something we shouldn't take for granted, right? And then obviously now dressed in linen, the high priest would be dressed in specific garments. And so Jesus restores, like Isaiah 61 verse 3 says, he gives us a garment of praise. Anybody, uh, anybody got a reason to, to praise him this morning, to, to thank him this morning? He gives us a garment of praise for a spirit of weariness or a spirit of heaviness. And now we have been atoned. Atoned meaning at one. So I'm going to highlight four things from this passage of Hebrews that we've um, looked at and continue this whole understanding of the priesthood. And these are the four points, and I want to encourage you to take notes if you want to take what uh, God is speaking to us today and then internalize it for your own purposes as you live out in the life that God has called us to live. The first point is the problem with priests. Some of y'all looking at me, yeah, I've got a problem with these priests and pastors. All right, all right, all right, we'll get there. The problem with lambs, the promise of Jesus, and the promise for us. Let me read that one more time. The problem with priests... The problem with lambs, the promise of Jesus, and the promise for us. So here's the first point that we encounter today. The problem with priests. There's, here's the issue that we have with the, the, the old model of priests. So for those of us who are a little uh, unfamiliar with the way that the Bible is structured, it's in two parts, right? Anybody yell out what the two parts are? Yes. Old Testament. And New Testament. So the Old Testament is the part of the Bible, the bigger chunk at the beginning, which is the life and the history of Israel before Jesus. 
And then the New Testament is uh, the Jesus' life and then into the early church, the first generation church. So when we look at the Old Testament model of priests, there is an issue there. Here's the scripture. Here's what the scripture says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. Everybody say once for all. All right. When he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. So here's the problem and the issue with priests today. The problem and the issue is, is twofold. It's twofold. The, the first problem is finitude, and the second issue is failure. We don't usually use the word finitude, um, so I'll just say finite. We all know fi- what finite means, like it's lim- there's limitations to it. So when we talk about finitude, um, the finitude of priests, what we're talking about here is that every person, and namely every priest, dies. Okay, that's, it's that simple. That all of them will live to a certain point and then they'll die. Here's, going back to the Old Testament, okay? There is this pattern that you see right from Genesis all the way through to Jesus. Here's the pattern. It's kind of fourfold if you want to break it down. Okay, here's the pattern. The first part of the pattern is that Israel walks with God, okay? Israel walks with God. Everybody say, yay! Oh, gosh. Hallelujah. Okay, everybody walks with God. All right, so we're all in good stead. But what ends up happening, okay, either later on in that generation or the next generation, what ends up happening is, and this is why generational transfer of faith is really important, that the, the next generation or later on in that generation, you also read this pattern of where they forget about God and they start to worship the created thing more than the creator, the blessing more than the blesser. You're with me. You're tracking, right? So this is, this is important because how many of you see that in Australia, right? We start to pursue other things and bow down at the altar of other smaller gods rather than giving God the worship and the glory for blessing us with everything. And then whether in that same generation or, or um, in, in the next generation, those values and that worship is not passed down. So what ends up happening is if you move away from having God in your life and you don't center your life around God, then you are going to just uh, uh, experience the trials without taking shelter under the grace of God. That's the nature of it. And so what happens in Israel is that they move away from worshiping God. They're like, we don't want to worship God anymore. We want to worship these other gods because it's more beneficial for our wallets. It's more beneficial for my own desires and that sort of thing. And so they start bowing down at the altar of these other foreign gods of the neighboring nations. So what ends up happening? Those neighboring nations end up coming to take over Israel. And then when that happens, when that invasion begins to happen, Israel starts to cry out because they're starting to lose their territory or they lose sight of who they are. And they start to cry out and lament, God, where are you? We need you. And of course, God sends somebody. God will send an Abraham or God will send a Moses or God will send a Deborah or God will send an Esther or God will send a David or a Solomon. He'll send somebody to come in 
whether one of the judges, he'll send somebody to come in and be the rescuer and help to realign Israel back to God. And guess what? Israel walks with God again. (laughs) So this is a pattern that happens throughout history. Adam walked with God, but then Eve ate the fruit. So you see this pattern all the way through. How many of you can kind of see this pattern? Not in your life. Maybe you have a friend, right? It's like this pattern of, yeah, it's awesome. Everything's good. We're worshiping God. And then trials come and then you're like, okay, maybe not. And then you start to, you know, like you'll start to get things tested. Maybe it's in your finances or maybe it's in your relationships, right? You start to question that God knows what he's doing. And so you start like lowering things and start letting, okay, well, I don't need to trust God for that. He's got me where I can start to see financial provision or relational provision my way. Rather than reading scripture, you start to read the Bible of Frank Sinatra or Usher. Did it my way, right? And then you do it your way, and God says, okay, you don't want me. I'm in your way. Rather than saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I'll let you have it. And then you see that it doesn't work. You're like, help God. Why am I battling anxiety and depression and suicide and all these things? And God says, well, I want to come in, but will you let me come in? This is the finitude, right? This also speaks to that second area of the problem with priests, which is failure. Is that for every Moses ascending the hill of Mount Sinai to encounter God and hear the written commandments, have have them handed to him on the tablets. For every Moses, there's an Aaron at the bottom of the hill downstairs at the club building a golden calf. Right? For every Samuel who's a child hearing the voice of God, there's the sons of Eli partying in the house, inviting prostitutes into the house of God and drinking and using the, the holy uh, artifices that are supposed to be used with worship to God. And so this is the failure. So you see, hopefully you're tracking that this is the problem with priests. We're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, and at the same time, we die. Wow, that's encouraging. Imagine if I finished the message right there. Okay, let's close our eyes. That's what we're done. Here's, here's, the, here's the caveat. Here's the tagline. They all die, and they all sin. That's the problem with priests. Here's the problem with lambs, too, right? Hebrews highlights that there are two weaknesses of the sacrifice itself, because all lambs die, too, And because people keep on sinning, they need more lambs. Think about this for a moment. I know I've got a few of my friends here that are from New Zealand. How many of you are originally from New Zealand or you came from New Zealand to be here in Australia? All right. These these are awesome people, right? These are my Kiwi brethren and sistren, as the reggae artists say. (laughs) Sistren. I've always loved that word. Um, But I, I, I think about coming from New Zealand, over 70 million sheep, and just over 5 million people. Crazy, right? Worthy is the lamb. But even the, that number of lambs is not enough just to cover the sins of sacrifice for the New Zealand population, let alone the world. See, here's the issue, is that in these sacrifices, Romans 10 verse 3 to 4 says, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then there's the fact that not only is there the problem with the number of sheep or lambs to cover our sin, 
But there's the problem of human fallenness, which is at the root of all of this, right? How often have we repented, right, of our sins and vowed never to do that again, only to find ourselves right back where we started? Maybe not you, maybe you have a friend. Another day, another innocent lamb killed. So this is the lamb's problem, right? The, promise, the problem with lambs is they all die and we all sin. How many of you are thankful that we have a promise in Jesus? So he is both the better priest and the better sacrifice. I love that about Christ, right? Verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There is more than enough historical evidence, not just for the existence of Jesus Christ historically walking the face of this earth, but also for his resurrection, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's not just from the scriptures, which describe more than 500 people witnessing him at one time. Can you imagine that? Apart from the disciples, apart from the woman who saw him, apart from the two men who saw him on the road to Emmaus and other people who encountered him, there was one time in resurrected form that five, over 500 people saw him alive. If that was to be disproved, they would have had to talk to five, over 500 people to verify that he didn't exist and put over 500 people in an asylum for their craziness if he did not exist. There's more than enough evidence. Then you come outside of scripture and you read historians like Josephus who were around, was around people. He was not a Christian. He was a Jewish historian who actually was around people who witnessed the resurrected Christ. It's more than enough evidence for him existing and being resurrected and now seated at the right hand of the Father. Because guess what? Jesus is our forever priest. He's not just a priest like the former priests who would live, serve, and die. Live, serve, and die. He lives forever. And then, apart from him being a better priest, he is also a much better sacrifice. In fact, he is the perfect sacrifice unblemished. His life was lived out perfectly. Every word that was uttered from his mouth was perfect. Every, every action was perfect. He lived unblemishedly. And that's why we can say safely in verse 27 here, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, because he doesn't have any, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all. Everybody say once for all. Okay, when he offered up himself. See, I grew up in a tradition as well, you know, in my culture as a Samoan, and not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily forced, but I think part of our culture sometimes is that as a pastor or uh, a minister, sometimes positionally we are held in a reverence. And I know that many of us come from different cultures um, that where that, that positional uh, favor that a, a pastor or a ministerial leader has can sometimes be used in a way that uh, is powerful, but then sometimes that power can be used in abuse. And I'm here to tell you today that there is a much more perfect priest or pastor in Jesus Christ. So hopefully you can see through me and see directly to Jesus Christ, because guess what? The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. Meaning that 
God who holds ultimate value and ultimate position sends his son to earth to be born into a society that would deem him homeless and without a place to live. He was born in a farm cave for crying out loud. Talk about ultimate highs to ultimate lows. That is the sacrifice that God is for us. And that, that's also the lesson that we learned from Christ's leadership, right? Is that any power that is delegated towards us, we take a position to serve, not to abuse or not to put people in a, a state of a power trip. And I'm here to just tell you, you know, we're all on this journey. I am not the perfect priest, but I point towards one who is a much better, much more perfect forever priest who is Jesus Christ. So any position that you might have, even in your workplace or at home, any position you have, use it to serve those you get to lead. That's what Christ models for us. Which brings us to the last point here, which is the promise of Jesus, but that promise is for us. Turn to somebody, encourage them this morning. This promise is for you. Shake them up real quick. Shake up your neighbor and just say, this promise is for you. Here's the promise, guys. Like, I need us to understand this. In Hebrews 7, we're going to go towards the end here of verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost. Now, I want to highlight two words there because I think this carries the crux of what we want to get at right now. He is able. Everybody say able. And he's able to save. Everybody say save. Let's touch on save first. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek lesson. I'm sure some of you already know these Greek words if you've, um, you know, studied uh, scripture and you're interested in this. Uh, but the verb to save is the Greek word sozo, right? Save expands into salvation or soteria, like my friend over there, soteria, right? Like that's your name. So like that, that's, that's where the Greek word comes from. Sozo, it's used absolutely, which means that Christ will save in the most comprehensive way. That he's, he's saved us once for all. You're catching this? Like his salvation is more than enough for you. What the enemy will try to tell you is that his salvation is not enough. Or that you have done so much that, there's, that he hasn't saved me from this. Let me tell you something. His sacrifice was once for all. By his grace, we did nothing to afford it, nothing to attain it, nothing to, uh, within our efforts to grab a hold of it. He, we did nothing. We don't deserve it, but he did it. And that's the power of the sozo, is that it's a complete deliverance. And there's no matter what sins that you have done, that his salvation is more than enough. It's complete. It's comprehensive. Then we move to the, the, the word able, it's the word dunatai, which also finds the same root word for dunamis. Some of you might have heard, and sometimes I find it quite funny because um, the, the object actually came much later than the Greek word, because I've heard people say, oh, dunamis is the, comes from the Greek word for dynamite. I'm like, dynamite wasn't invented until the 19th century, come on. But there is something there, because dunatai, is where we get the word dynamic from, which, it's the, which refers to the power that has been given to you. What does that power look like? Does it look like the Marvel MCU? No, it doesn't look like that. What it looks like is that you, each, each one of you who was a follower of Jesus and has been saved through the power of what he has done as our great high priest and our perfect sacrifice, what he is showing us 
here at this point through the dunatai is that you have not just been saved, but you've been saved for a purpose on purpose. There is a purpose for your life. Part of that might be your vocation. Often when we hear the word vocation, we think about our job. It's a lot more than just a job. It's a calling. And you don't think about your job in just the sense of how you might financially gain. You don't think about your job as something positional so you can advance your career. You think about your job in terms of where God has positioned you and anointed you, do not tie, to be able to see his calling reflected in how you build the kingdom where he's put you. We've got people in here who are creatives. Use that creativity. Reflect the glory of God. We've got people here who are sports uh, players and on sports teams and very influential in, in those spaces. God wants you to use that influence and reflect his glory. But you can't do it in your own effort. You can't walk out of here and say, oh, Pastor Nelly told me to, so I guess I have to do it. No, you have to be dunatai. You have to be empowered by his spirit. By living in his spirit, you naturally reflect his glory. You don't do it in your own effort. Again, you've come to the great high priest who is the great sacrifice. This is the salvation from the guilt of sin, the effects of sin, the power of sin. And this is where I want to just kind of highlight as we wind this thing up. See, Peter wrote in First uh, Peter chapter 2 about the purpose, about the reason why you have been, I know this is wrong in the Greek, you've been dunatide, okay? You've been anointed, Often when we hear the word anointed, for those of us who grew up in Pentecostal churches, right? You've been anointed, ha! You know, I'm not talking about like, woo, let's get a shiver down our spine. We can turn the aircon up and make that happen, right? I'm talking about when you are anointed, there is a reason that God puts his power in you to fulfill that purpose. Have you ever seen somebody operate in the anointing where you're watching somebody? I'm not just talking about preachers. I'm talking about people like that are playing a game or they're uh, drawing something or they're operating in business. And it seems lo- so effortless the way that they're doing what they're doing because they're doing such an amazing thing. And you're like, wow, there's something special about the way you do that thing. There's an anointing on them. If only people would recognize where that anointing comes from. You might hear your favorite rapper rap, even though he's rapping about garbage. It's the, it's the thing that he should be using that rap for, for to the glory of God, right? So here's the thing. Anyway, let's, let's move on here to what Peter said. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Any of you thankful this morning that you've been called out of the darkness and the mess that you were in into marvelous light? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Anybody thankful for God's mercy this morning? I don't know about you and the five people that said, whoa, yeah, but I'm thankful for God's mercy because his mercies are new every morning. I know I do this all the time, but we have to do it again. So you get it. Everybody take a deep breath. Breathe out carefully, especially if it didn't brush. Breathe out. Okay, that breath that you just took is by the mercy of God. You did nothing to deserve that breath. But the mere fact you have breath in your lungs is reason enough to praise him this morning. You don't deserve it. You live on borrowed time, but he has given you breath and anointed you and appointed you for his purposes by his mercy. So will we sit back and just let life happen to us or think God's sacrifice is not sufficient for us or will we actually lean into the grace 
of God and actually say, you know what? I'm not living in pride anymore. The only thing I have to be proud of is my failures, but a God who has given me his perfect priest and his perfect sacrifice in Jesus. And that's all I have to reflect anymore. So I don't offer sacrifices to attain God's love and God's peace and God's value. You know why I offer sacrifices? Because I'm thankful. My sacrifice. Again, some of us came from cultures where we were obliged to give, obliged to serve. I'm a pastor's kid, so I know, you know, like it wasn't necessarily my parents, but there's this perspective, right? This perspective that people have, oh, yeah. You know, in Simon, oh, you know, the son of the, the son of the pastor, so he has to serve. And so there were times in my own faith journey when I had to serve, or just like we say in Simon, and just will serve. Oh, guess I got to do this. Guess I got to do that to uphold, you know, the the name of the organization, the church, or, or, my, or my father as a pastor. And it wasn't necessarily him; it was just the expectation. I'm here to tell you today that expectation is no longer there. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. This is the message of the gospel. He invites you in. Stop trying to perform your way into his presence. The great priest and the great sacrifice has already paved the way with the red carpet stained by his blood. He says, come on in to my presence. Enter in where there is fullness of joy. Do you trust them for their joy? I want to end with these two quotes here. First one comes from one of my favorite church fathers. It's a well-known priest and martyr in the early church in the fourth century, a guy by the name of Athanasius, he's a bishop. And he said this, this, this succinctly puts all that I've said into one sentence. He says, he became what we are, so that he might make us what he is. Say that one more time so you can get this in your spirit. He became what we are, so that he might make us what he is. Athanasius understood this to his, what, what humans would deem as a bitter end because he was sacrificed. He actually literally had to lay his life down for his faith. Another man who was challenged, and this is the final quote that I have for us this morning and for those of you who are still wondering why I called this message, We Free Kings, hopefully with this quote from this man who also uh, was under deep pressure to maintain his faith, the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, said this, not only are we the freest kings of all, but we are also priests forever. This is more excellent by far than kingship because through the priesthood, we are worthy to appear before God, to pray for others, to teach one another the things that are of God. For these are the priestly duties that absolutely cannot be bestowed on anyone who does not believe. Christ obtained this priesthood for us if we trust in him so that we are his colleagues, his co-heirs, his co-rulers, so we are co-priests with him, daring to come with confidence into God's presence in the spirit of faith and cry, Abba, Father, to pray for one another and to do all the things that we see are done and prefigured by the visible and corporal office of priests. Turn to somebody, encourage them. You have a purpose. It's a holy purpose. 
It's a purpose that he has set you apart for. But you've got to believe that this holy God has called you to be holy. Holy doesn't mean you have to button up when you come to church. Holiness means I understand that I've been set apart for God's glory in the way that I live my life. But I lean into the one who is the perfect sacrifice in order to walk in holiness. So understanding those quotes that I give you, here's the question I give you. Do you believe that he has made you holy as he is holy? Do you believe it? Because when you believe it, you live differently. You trust in him more. Maybe you're in this room today and you understand theologically. Okay, I understand that that's who God is. But God's inviting you to take that theology and actually put it in your heart and live it out in your life. To actually believe that he is more than able to save. He's more than able to provide. He's more than able to deliver. He's more than able to heal. He is more than able to do what he said he will do. Again, this is only attainable through the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. So I want to invite us at this point to pray and just take inventory of where we are in understanding this and living out our lives. There's no more trying to fool anybody else. This is between us and God. So I invite us just to bow our heads. Close our eyes this morning. Take the opportunity this morning just to reflect. In thankfulness for Christ who is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. God, we thank you this morning. I'm personally just so thankful for your mercy your grace towards me. I'm thankful, God, that you've saved me. Thankful, God, that you would see fit to choose me. You would see fit to choose the people in this room to hear this message. And you would invite all of us in this room to come closer to you. That is your invitation. Holy Spirit, we pray you move in this place as you invite those who are in this room towards yourself. Thank you for your call to holiness. Thank you for your call towards being with you and being one with you, at one with you through your atonement. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this room today and your desire is to hand your life over to the one who is holy, who is the perfect priest in the perfect sacrifice and you're wanting to operate now in this life that he's called us to live no longer trusting in your own capacity or ability but to trust him fully I want to pray for you this morning I'm going to pray and I invite you to pray with me right where you are maybe God's impressing on you a specific area of your life maybe he's just calling you to trust him with your whole life but I want to pray this prayer and I want to invite you to pray this with me right where you are Just pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I come to you today recognizing that I have been trusting in my own capacity. So this morning, I put my trust completely in you. I put my trust completely in the perfect priest. I put my trust completely in the perfect sacrifice. And I choose today to follow you wholeheartedly. 
I give you my life afresh today. I declare this morning that I am completely yours and you are mine. In Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's message brought to you by Every Nation Brisbane. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at ianbrisbane.org. Thank you for listening. God bless.